Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number eight in our series on the second half of world history. Glad you could join me. In podcast number seven, we reviewed or discussed the impact of Cesare Beccaria in his idea, the purpose of law. We then looked at the rise of the physiocrats, as well as Adam, the impact of the writings of Adam Smith, Montesquieu, as well as the role that government should play through the perspective of Frederick the Great of Prussia. All of those ideas, as they came through and were products of the Enlightenment, plus the impact of the American Revolution, caused a considerable amount of political unrest back in France. And it's no surprise in some cases to, if you ask many historians and political scientists, that the French Revolution, believe it or not, followed that of the American Revolution. However, the process of the revolution and the way it would play out, much less the end of it, would be extraordinarily different from what the Americans experienced and the ultimate outcome back in that newly founded result of the revolution, that being the United States of America. In France, likewise, the peasant class was dealing with a monarch. However, to the rebels in America, in the founding fathers, that monarch was 3,000 miles in a six-week journey, providing the weather was good every day, that was a 3,000-mile, six-month journey away, six weeks, excuse me, journey away. That's not the case in France. When the peasants are rising up against the established absolute monarchy, they're rebelling against a monarchy who has control of the military right in their own backyard. Remember, too, that France, by and large, is not a huge country. Yes, when you look at it in the map of Europe compared to other European countries, it can appear quite large. But France would, for the most part, fit within the state of Texas as it would push the edges of it a little bit here and there. Other than that, if you'd lose that as a comparison, for the rebels to, to go up against the established monarch who has control of the military, they are talking about a, a capital and a source of power that's not all that far away. Nothing in comparison to what the, the luxury that the rebels had back in the British colonies in North America. The monarch had, in addition to an uprising middle class, not that there was one per se as we know it today, but it, while they had issues with rebellion and discontent among the majority of the lower and middle classes of France, the monarch also had another challenge, and that was the fact that it was darn near bankrupt. 
The Treasury was bankrupt due to a couple of different things. Number one was the international, the international conflicts. The nobility among the richest in Europe also was not paying their fair share of taxes, a phrase that we continue to hear throughout the United States during the rebellion, as well as all the way through modern times in the 21st century. You constantly hear Democrats talking about that the wealthy should pay their fair share. And Republicans saying through corporate taxes and other payments, they do pay their fair share. And it's not that, again, it's it's a, either one way or the other. It's just a perspective dependent upon when one looks at how much they're paying. The fact that the French nobility, though, were richer by and large than any other no, noble class throughout Europe also added to the discontent among the commoners. The other problem is that the government couldn't pass any tax legislation because of the way the voting procedures were established in pre-revolutionary France. The individuals, while they voted, they didn't vote with each particular headcount adding up to a total and the greatest number of headcounts or greatest number of hands, so to speak, wins. The peasants as well as the first and second estates, as we'll talk about in a moment, they voted as one body, as one group of people. So there really was three ultimate vote tallies that could be and would be assessed as an individual attempted to try to indicate how and where they felt about a particular tax or a particular measure. The first and second estates constantly voted together. Why? Because the first estate was the clergy, which owned roughly 10% of the land, of which that was also not taxed. The second estate was the nobility, 20% of the classes in, in uh, modern day in France at that point. So the first estate, 10% of the people. Second estate, the nobility. The third estate was the rest of the population. It was the commoners. And they also had to collectively vote as one body. So it was no surprise that the first and second estates were constantly assisting one another and had each other's backs. They would always be able to override the will of the rest of the population because, again, it didn't, vote tallies weren't taken by headcount. It was by how the estate as a whole voted. So anytime that there was a measure put forward that perhaps the clergy needs to be taxed or certainly the second class, the second estate, the nobility needs to be taxed, both the first and the second estate would vote down to that, while the third estate would vote up or approve that, but they would lose time and time again, two to one. That was what was leading to the significant unrest within pre-revolutionary France. There was also other issues too, which is not as commonly well known, that I also wish to stress as to why ultimately a revolution, a political revolution would break out in the country of France. First off, in 1788, most of the French countryside was hammered by hailstorms, which wiped out a significant number of crops throughout the country. What's worse is that drought followed. So they had a significant amount of rain, but torrential rains dropping as many 
hailstones as the French thought could possibly come out of the sky, wiping out their crops with the sudden absence of rain, the drought that follows. And now add to this is the most severe winter in decades that had pushed thousands and thousands of people to starvation as grain prices, of course, and not surprisingly, skyrocketed. So as a result of this, by 1789, with civil unrest already being felt by 70% of the population, the time was ripe that a political revolution would break out, especially seen that the American Revolution had concluded just a half a dozen years prior, and they had already formulated what became known as a constitutional democracy produced in that famous summer of 1787. The French were well aware of political progress in a former British colony in North America. As a result of all this, fewer taxes were able to be raised from any of the three estates, and the peasant classes, of course, rebelled. So the government convened, known as the Estates General, to attempt to try to address the decrease in taxes and the increase in starvation that was being recorded throughout the country. The third estate, before any legislation could be put forward, the third estate took a stand, yes, collectively, and that was the power here of this, of this moment, is when they said that we will no longer vote as one body. We will vote by headcount, just the way it's happening in the newly formed United States of America. We will no longer vote as one body. There will can still be three estates, but there will no longer be a consensus vote from each estate. Rather, we will vote as one body. That notion now was dead because they would vote by headcount. And in a symbolic show of force, each member of the third estate that was present voted in the affirmative for this measure. It became known, not surprisingly, as the voting debate. However, the first and second estates collectively vehemently objected. And there was your impasse. Both the first and second estates, no surprise once again that they have one another's backs, are voting down on this measure, while the third estate is not collectively voting, but individually voting, knowing full well that even if the first and second estates could count two votes per person that was a member of that estate, they were still going to lose by a landslide. To take measures even further, the third estate as a whole walked out onto the royal tennis courts because of the size of their collective body, and they vowed to leave only after a new const national constitution was written and passed. And that's what became known retrospectively as the tennis court oath. The oath taken by the third estate that they would not leave without a new const national constitution. So where was King Louis XVI in all of this? He took a gamble or placed a bet of which ultimately he would lose. This is, one could argue, one of the first times we're seeing in recorded political history that the political powers that be recognizes the massive objections of the commoners 
and to try to appease them, looks for a version of the blame game, and from there backs away and tries to wash his hands to this, feigning this idea that I had no idea that the third estate was in this 70% of the peasant population was so unhappy. So therefore, he looked for a scapegoat, and he got that with his finance minister, Jacques Necker. The commoners took this offensively because Necker was sympathetic to the commoners' plight. So not only did King Louis take the wrong bet by, play, by trying to fire someone to appease the crowd, but of all the people that he could have fired within his government, he chose the one that the commoners were the most fond of. So that was the first part of the reason why the ultimate unpopularity of King Louis XVI would ultimately rise. The second was that he stationed military troops in and throughout Paris. This was largely no different than what the uh, King of England did, George III, when he started getting whiffs of rebellion from the commoners back in the North American British colonies. Therefore, King George III stationed British troops throughout the colonies. And likewise, the British colonists took that offensively, no different than the French throughout France, specifically in Paris, because again, this threatened the commoners. So with these issues, as we discussed in the past couple of minutes, coming together or convening, it would be in this light that the French Revolution and the phase one of that revolution ultimately would begin. When the storming of the Bastille prison took place on July 14, 1789, most people and historians agree that that was the beginning of the America, excuse me, of the French Revolution, just as the battles at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts began the American Revolution. As I covered in my world history podcast earlier on the American Revolution, and far more extensively in my American history podcast when I discussed the American Revolution, there were so many events that led up or precipitated those two areas, which in the in Massachusetts, which would retrospectively be known as the beginning of the American Revolution. Likewise, here. The storming of the Bastille prison. Yes, your average survey world history textbook will begin with this event. But hopefully in the past couple of minutes, you've been now enlightened to see, no pun intended using that word, uh, the enlightened word enlightenment, but hopefully you've been able to see here that there were a lot of other issues that were culminating and ultimately coming to light that precipitated that political storming of the Bastille prison on July 14, 1789. However, even into the 21st century though, please note that oftentimes France has their equivalent of our July 4th, of the American July 4th, as their July 14th. Our July 4th in the notorious year of 1776, theirs in 1789. So what did the storming of the Bastille prison do? Other than, of course, of course, more and more civilian unrest, the commoners were beginning to get the feeling that they were being heard. As a result, what followed was what became known as the Great Fear in the remaining weeks of July and into the early part of August of 1789. 
what what in, was included with the great fear was that this was a permanent uprising against the landed wealth by the peasant class, which clearly by headcount well outnumbered the landed wealth. Therefore, the French citizens demanded to be treated and be seen as equal in front of the law. And this is significant because what also came out of this event was the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, no less in that exact same month of 1789. Let me read to you again the title of that document, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. Do you notice, of course, and I'm just stressing this for those of you that might be half listening with one ear or thinking about something else going on with the other part of your mind, and I get that, but please know that this is a mirror reflection of the impact of the Declaration of Independence and the subsequent Constitution that the British rebels, eventually called Americans, passed as a result of and being in the middle of a political revolution. Here, France is echoing that same sentiment. Once again, let's turn our attention back to King Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette. How did they fare during this time? Not well. They fled Paris for safer refuge in the northeast regions of France. Yes, it is true that they returned, but only to lock themselves in their palace and have several layers of armed guards around the palace protecting them. However, from his locked office, well within the deep bowels of the palace, King Louis did incorporate some changes as a result. So the changes that result of the fear is that taxation would be based on one's ability to pay. Secondly, he granted the freedom of religion and a far greater freedom of the right of a commoner to own property. Now, this may seem minor, especially looking at this in retrospect, but this is proving that this re rebellion by this commoners, the third class, the third estate, was making a difference. This could have been the end of the political revolution known as the French Revolution, because the next segment would be an attempt to rebuild the French government based on these new tenets and laws issued by King Louis XVI. So what ultimately will come out of this is, in terms of rebuilding of the French government, is even a redefinition of what type of government France would have. Prior to this, France had what became what was known as an absolute monarchy. Think about that term for just a moment. Monarch, of course, meaning king or queen. We get that. But look at that word in front of it. Absolute. Absolutism. When I say absolute, we often get the connotation that there's no questions asked. There's no other possible interpretation. Hey, are you able to join me today going somewhere? Absolutely. We, we get from that answer that there's that your friend that's going with you, there's not even a chance that he or she would be doing something else. Absolutely is such a confident answer. Hence, absolute monarchy is a monarch that has the right to rule. Absolutely. That means no questions asked. A king and possibly a queen above the law. The British rebels in North America starting in 1776 said no more dice to that. A decade and a half later, the French citizens are saying the same thing.
However, they're not quite ready to dispense with the idea of a monarch in its entirety. Therefore, the will, they will retain the monarchy, but the word in front of it will change. It'll no longer be an absolute monarch. It will now be a constitutional monarchy, meaning a monarch that is limited to the exact same provisions in a future French constitution that every French commoner will also have to adhere to. They would also form a unicameral assembly or one house assembly where members would be elected by taxpayers. And one of the first provisions to come out of this unicameral assembly might seem to be a nothing or a big deal by the average person today. But they also introduced the metric system where there would be standard set provisions about how things would be measured, whether it be by length or width, or Wade. If you might think, well, what's the big deal to that? You have no idea then, perhaps, regardless of where you're listening to this podcast around the world, if you are by chance are holding any type of a food product in your hand, a bag of chips, for example, or maybe you're sitting down and having your breakfast and listening to this podcast and you have that box of cereal in front of you, you're going to see something that's also on the bag of chips, that's also in the bottle of water, that's also on the can of soda, that's also on the can or on the can of coffee, and on and on with almost all food products in the Western world. And that is the weight or liquid ounces. How many liquid ounces is in this bottle of water? How many pounds is in this bag of potatoes? The fact that people worldwide enjoy that today is a result of the French Revolution because the commoners and the peasant class was tired of going into a merchant shop asking, for example, for a pound of potatoes, where of course they wouldn't say it that way, but a bag of potatoes and getting a bag with a couple of potatoes inside where a member of the clergy or the nobility walks into that same establishment, gets a bag of potatoes that's so heavy that they need two hands to carry it. No more. Now there would be standard standardization of weights and measurements. Why? Because weights and measurements doesn't care what your background is, doesn't care what your religion is or what your gender is in the very same way that the Americans passed that constitution of the United States as the supreme law of the land, superior to every human member of government in America's democracy. Why? Because once again, if the parchment is the supreme law of the land, parchment doesn't care what your skin color, gender, etc., is. So this, again, may seem to be a minor thing coming out of the French Revolution, but was very, very much significant. Much revenue was also then generated in this new French government through the confiscation of land that was once held by the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, the church is pounding their chest in protest, but they don't have the headcount to be able to try to persuade the government to respond otherwise. This new government would be formulated and signed into law less than 11 months after the Great Fear started. And of all days that it signed into law, no doubt, July 14th, 1790. Notice the irony that one year prior was the storming of the Bastille. One year later 
the French people have a new constitution and a new government. Yes, on the surface, you're thinking, well, that should have ended what became known as the French Revolution. Like the Americans, the men that started that revolution would have been the men that ended that revolution. But you see, it wasn't going to work out that way. Why? Because change was initiated. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure I'm not the first to tell you, and therefore you're not going to be surprised when I say change hurts. Change is uncomfortable. Even if it's change we want, there's a learning process, a learning curve, and therefore change can be psychologically difficult to bear at first. Ask any member that works in the White House that is there regardless of what president and first lady and first family is there. When a new president comes in, even if it's one that they voted for, there's still this period of being uncomfortable because a new person and new family are present now. They have a new way of doing things. Likewise in America, two-thirds of the British colonists did not want George Washington to win. They did not want a new constitution, but ultimately they prevailed. But you see, in America, there was supposed to be a reign of terror or deadly rebellious stage called phase two of the American Revolution. But it never came to be for reasons, again, that I flesh out in my podcasts on the American Revolution and my American History One podcasts, which I more than encourage and welcome you to listen to. But here in France, there's also people that are suffering from this change. And they were going to become enemies of this brand new established government in the country of France. They boiled down into three basic groups. And no, these are not the three estates we talked about earlier, although there will be a parallel. The first group of newly formed enemies of this established government would be, no surprise, officials of the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, they're going to be up in arms, and they're going to want to turn, overturn this revolution at the earliest possible moment. The aristocracy, the landed wealth, the nobility, many that fled France fearing for their lives, they want to get back home, and they want to be able to press that reset button to make it like it was before this change began. So those are the first two of the three groups. So who would this third group be then? Let me give you a moment to think about that. It's no surprise when I said three groups of enemies. Sure, of course, the Roman Catholic Church is one group. The aristocracy nobility is the second group. But who would that third group be? Wouldn't be the peasants, would it? I mean, they're the ones that wanted this change. They're the ones that collectively put their heads together, took that tennis court oath, put their hands together, said, we're not leaving here until we have change implemented just the way the Americans did. And they got that. So who could this third group be? Believe it or not, it's a minority of that peasant group. A minority that said, hey, yeah, we got the change, but it wasn't enough. Most commoners, 
Most John and Jane Doe's of society in France arguably had not won anything other than theoretical rights and legal equality. You might say, yeah, that's huge. And I'm with you. I agree. That is huge. However, those who didn't own land still couldn't vote. You might say, well, then I can move to America. Nope. It's the same way in the United States, even after our Constitution is passed. If you are not 21 years or older, male, and a landowner, you cannot vote. It was no different in France. But there was this small group of peasants that said, sorry, changes have been started and implemented, and that's awesome. But they didn't go far enough, and it didn't come fast enough. Those enemies would coalesce and they would join forces. And it wouldn't be right away. It would take just a couple of years. But eventually, those three groups of enemies would come back to do everything they could to change this newly established government. So they joined forces, you say? Oh, no, that would have been too easy. No, the Roman Catholic Church officials and the nobility, they're going to join forces to try to turn things back to the way it was before this blasted revolution even started in their minds. But that peasant minority? Oh, no. They want to run 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And they want change to happen, even if it means heads are going to roll. Hint, hint. And that's what will begin with the second phase of the French Revolution, which will be known, not surprisingly, as the reign of terror. So thank you for listening to this opening phase of the French Revolution. If you liked what we discussed today, please go on to your site and leave me a review or the venue in which you're listening to this podcast. If you have any book recommendations or other ideas about this podcast, please don't hesitate to contact me as well through my website at ceconsola.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.